Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them, please, to Galatians, not Galaxy. Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 25. Now, one thing that is obvious and often overlooked in Scripture is that God wants His people to be happy. God wants His people to be joyful, cheerful. This is undeniably true. God wants each of us to be filled with the joy and cheer and happiness of Christ. In fact, rejoice, give thanks, give praise in its various forms. It's one of the most often repeated commandments in the entire Bible. And joy, it really is inseparable from what it means to have God as your Father. Yeah, I remember once, just out of, uh, out of curiosity, I wanted to see how many holidays people had in the Old Testament compared to today. And so I, I went through the Old Testament, wrote down all of, the, all of the holidays, all of the festivals, all of that, and uh, it worked out to be about 79 or so, and, uh, including Sabbaths, 79. And given the way we think about the Old Testament, most of the time when we think about the Old Testament, there's kind of a gloom over the whole thing, right? Um, I expected those, that's what I thought, I expected those holidays to be pretty somber, serious, severe days that, uh, that the people of Israel were well accustomed to. You see them almost always, you think of them as living under the clouds of Mount Sinai. And they worshipped, they praised God, and they, and they did all of this, but kind of always looking over their shoulder and with their head ducked. Well, you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that of those 79 days, one of them was a day of affliction and fasting. One of them, the Day of Atonement. The other 78 of those days were days of rest or festivals and feasts where everyone would come together and rejoice, like, uh, like having a potluck, but instead of just being for an afternoon, it was for an entire day, or in some cases, an entire week. And then every seven years, there was a year of rest where everyone would devote more time to fellowship and rest. And then after every 49 years, there was a year of jubilee where everyone would celebrate all year long. And in fact, when the Lord tells him about this uh, year of jubilee, he says, you're going to worry. Well, if we, don't, if we don't tend to our fields and do all of this, what are we going to eat? And he says, I will give you so much the year before this year of jubilee. If you're faithful to me, I'll give you so much that when the next year comes, you'll still be eating from the year previous. It's going to give them two and a half years worth in one year to sustain them through this year of jubilee. It was a time of great celebration dedicated to the Lord. All debts canceled. And the Lord ordained this celebration. And the whole aim of all of these holidays and all of these festivals, it was to remind people that it is a good thing, a joyful thing to know the Lord and to be known by Him. If God is your God, then you have every reason in the universe 
to be joyful no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. You always have a greater reason to rejoice. So let's take a look at our passage this morning. Galatians 5, 13-26. Kind of the, the setting, the tree where the fruit of the Spirit are growing. And we're going to narrow in on one word. Joy. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve, uh, uh, through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, let's pray. Lord, joy is a fruit of the Spirit that you produce in the life of all of your people. Some to greater degrees than others. But Lord, you are at work. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a joyful people. Lord, our, our expression, our joy, our rejoicing, I pray that it would communicate to the world around us that it is a good thing to know you as our God. And I pray that we wouldn't live such lives that anybody who was watching us or investigating us would look and say, I don't know what kind of God they serve, but they seems to me it seems to me that they are very hard. Lord, you are not a hard master. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And I pray, God, that we would be a people filled with joy. And I pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling to be happy, to be joyful. I pray that this morning would put a foundation under their feet so that they would be able to know the joy of the Lord that cannot move and is never taken away. It's in your name we pray. Help me to preach and help us to hear. Amen. You know, very often, and I, and I used to hear this a lot, I, I don't hear it as much now, but I, I would hear all the time in the past Christians making a distinction between joy and happiness. We are called to be joyful, but not necessarily happy. And what you find when people say that, 
is they tend to mean that there is a kind of Christian joy that has no measurable expression, never really gives way to laughter, and views the world around it with a kind of cynical seriousness. In short, it's a joy that really doesn't look very joyful. A joy that uh, puts an expression on the face that no onlooker could ever possibly mistake for being actually happy. You know, the truth is, there really is no distinction between being joyful and being happy or cheerful. In fact, you think of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. That word blessed could just as easily be translated into English as the word happy. The only difference between joy and happy is two letters. There's no such thing as joy in the heart that does not show itself in the face or in the life. You know, everybody knows when a person is joyful or they're just pretending to be. And so the joy of the Spirit is not a, a somber, supercritical, scowling joy. On the other side of that, it's not a frivolous or fake kind of chipperness either. There is a, a seriousness to it. There's a serious joy. But have you ever met somebody like that who is uh, always pretending to be happy? It's like their smiles propped up with toothpicks. It is so obviously insincere and superficial, it can almost make you sick. Right? Like eating a cup full of sugar. It's not pleasant. And everyone sees through it when they see it. And everyone knows this person is not actually joyful. Everyone can tell the difference between a real smile and a fake smile. Just ask your kids to uh, take pictures. It's in, the same. it's in the same vein as this cynical, serious, so-called joy. Both are hypocritical, neither are real, and everyone knows it. And so to create a kind of spiritual joy that could never be mistaken for actual congeniality, it does a great disservice to Christianity and to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the spirit of joy who dwells in us. Now I wonder, well, where does this idea come from, that a Christian can have a kind of unhappy joy? I'm sure it comes from many places, least of all the disposition of the person uh, in particular, but I think most of it comes from a person's view of Christ. Few people think of Jesus as the man of joy. Now imagine, imagine for a moment you were given the task of drawing a picture of Jesus. My apologies to the iconoclasts out there. But imagine you had the ability to do it. You could draw a picture of Jesus appropriately and you were tasked to capture the whole uh, tenure of his ministry and his character in a single drawing. What would it look like? What scene would you choose? What expression would you write onto his face? I imagine most of us would sketch a serious or a somber expression. Maybe he would be pensive or contemplative. Maybe he would be stern or grieved or determined. But the one thing I doubt would come first to anyone's mind would be to represent Christ with a smile on his face. Really, it wouldn't even enter our thoughts. I mean, how could Jesus be happy? Look at his life. He carried too much sorrow. He was too acquainted with grief. He was 
serious. His task, his mission, it was too grim. His opposition was too strong. His enemies were too violent. And not just his opponents, even his friends. His friends were fickle. They were for him one day, away the next. His disciples were dull, never understanding. How could anybody have a moment of joy living in that kind of situation? How could the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 even know how to make the muscles in his face craft a smile? He was surrounded by sin. He was surrounded by unbelief. He was surrounded by needy, needy people on the one hand and hateful people on the other. In the end, he was going to be killed and he knew it. How could Jesus ever be joyful having to put up with and suffer through all of that? You know what that kind of thinking reveals? That kind of thinking reveals that we really don't know the first thing about Christian joy. Because the first thing about Christian joy, the most important defining thing about Christian joy, the joy of the Spirit, is that it's not born out of our circumstances or our situations. Our joy is not dependent on whether or not things are going well for us, whether we are well-liked, and whether our life is trouble-free. This, this feeble joy that is entirely dependent upon circumstances, really it's the unfortunate reason why there is so little joy in the world today. And, and we see this absolutely everywhere, don't we? Every time you turn on the news, every time you read a paper, every time you're listening to the radio or scrolling the headlines, you'll see a lot of things, but joy isn't one of the most of the fruit of the Spirit aren't on uh, large display anywhere. The world's joy is totally and absolutely dependent on the circumstances one finds himself or herself in. And this explains... Partially, the unbridled passions and the outrage that exists. If all you have is this life, and this is it, all your hope and joy is anchored here, then if your enemies gain the upper hand, you have zero reason for joy. I mean, if you're surrounded by enemies, what can you say? If all of your friends abandon you in your hour of need or you lose your job or your family life isn't great, your wife or your husband or your children are always giving you a hard time, right? your rights are being taken away, uh, the economy is going haywire. What kind of joy can you have when you look three years down the road? If your joy is only based on your circumstances and your circumstances are not what you want them to be, then how in the world can you be happy? You can't. Apart from Christ, there is no lasting joy. There's just temporary moments of elation or diversion or satisfaction or escapism that quickly dissolve and disappear. It's like a child with cotton candy and they drop it in the water. One moment it's there, the next minute it's disappeared, it's vanished. A little bit of water has washed it away. This is the reason why the world around you is so joyless. It has no hope, no joy, nothing beyond tomorrow. If tomorrow looks bad, if tomorrow does not look promising, 
then today can be nothing but miserable. And if tomorrow looks good and the situation looks improved, even then it's still always being threatened by political rivals and petty feuds and economic upheaval and so many other things. Joy is increasingly becoming an illusion in our world. It's, it's a memory of something that used to exist, like a myth. And by and large, because we are so surrounded by it, this kind of thinking affects us as Christians and how we think about our joy. How can I be joyful when so many things are going wrong? How can I be joyful when so much is being taken away? How can I be joyful when my circumstances are so far away from what I want them to be? How can I be joyful when every comfort I enjoy is being pulled out from under my feet? How can I be joyful when tomorrow looks like it's going to be a lot worse than today? So you see, joy is an extremely fragile thing in the world. It can be upset by a breeze. It's entirely dependent on whether things are going well or things are going poorly. But then consider Christ and all that he suffered. His joy was not shaken. The joy of the Lord was his strength. And you, when you read about him in the Gospels, it, it's hard to picture Jesus as, as always scowling. I can't imagine him being a kind of person who was always morose and sullen. I can't, I can't imagine little children would flock to such a man. I can't imagine he would have been accused of being a glutton and being a drunkard if he never had a cheerful disposition. Right? A sullen person is not the kind of person who tells his disciples, while I am here with you, it's not appropriate to fast, but to rejoice. A morose person on the night of his death, he doesn't look around at his disciples who are going to soon betray him, and he knows it, and tell them, I have eagerly desired, I have been looking forward to sharing this Passover meal with you. Jesus was a joy-filled man, and his joy did not come from where he lived or his economic standing, didn't have a place to lay his head, didn't come from the people around him, from any aspect of a situation. And so, because his joy didn't come out of those things, his joy didn't go away when those things were washed out and trials filled the, filled the void. In fact, it was his joy that actually enabled him to endure those things. We read it this morning. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised its shame. So joy, joy was not born out of the absence of trials and of suffering. Joy is what enabled the trials and the suffering to be endured. Joy was not born, the joy of the Lord did not come because he had no trials and no sufferings. His joy is what enabled him to face those trials, rejoice through them, and come out on the other side spiritually unscathed. Again, this is a very different joy than is found in the world. In a way, it's beyond comparison. 
One joy is washed to and fro, whichever way the waves carry it, and the other is immovable. It doesn't go anywhere, even if a tidal wave washes over it. And it is that, that rock, solid, immovable, unshakable joy that comes from the Spirit of God and characterizes the whole Christian outlook on life. It actually looks like joy. You know, Calvin writes helpfully on this when he defines Christian joy as the disposition of one's personality towards cheerfulness. The disposition of one's personality towards cheerfulness. He doesn't make a distinction between being happy and being joyful. And he says Christian joy means the general disposition of your life is inclined to be cheerful. What a good definition. The Christian disposition, the direction of their personality is to congeniality and to cheerfulness and to happiness. The, the Christian has the default position of contented rejoicing. And for that to be true, and I'm stressing this because this is so important, for that to be true, our joy cannot come from our circumstances. It must be rather cemented in the victory and the promises of Christ. Let me give you an example. Have you ever had something so great happen to you? And maybe you've said this out loud, but it's just something, something unexpected, or maybe it was expected. It finally comes, it's wonderful, and you say, nothing can get me down today. Right? The triumph has filled me with such joy that even if everything else is taken away and gone, I will be content, and I will be more than content. Have you ever experienced that? I'm sure everyone in this room has, has experienced something like that in their lives. I mean, you see it in sports all the time. When a team wins a championship, what do they do? Oh, they throw their hands up in the air, they shout, they run around in laps, hands over their head, they hug one another, they're, they're ecstatic because of their victory. Or when a, a nation or a group of people has been conquered by their enemies and then finally they're liberated, they rejoice. They mark the day in their calendars to celebrate it year after year after year. I mean, maybe you've seen some pictures from the Second World War and, and the liberation in Belgium and the Netherlands. And, and people came out of their houses and they were waving flags and they were celebrating in the streets. You know, the day before the town was liberated, if you didn't have any food in your cupboard, that was a pretty big deal. But when the Allies came through and the people were free... Yesterday's trouble really didn't seem that bad anymore, would it? We're in a courtroom after a grueling trial with high stakes and a defendant is declared not guilty. It's going to take a lot to get them down. Or if someone is very sick and they struggle against the disease for a long time and when that disease is finally overcome and they recover, maybe they're able to walk again, maybe they've got their thinking back, maybe they've recovered from something that could have been terminal. What do they do? They rejoice. They're filled with joy for the victory of their health. This type of victory is the foundation of your joy as a Christian. This is how you ought to think about your life. Not in terms of temporary victories. The, the, the nation that was set free could be conquered again. The team that was victorious could lose their next match. The, 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 the health could fail again. It will fail for all of us. But Christ has overcome the world. And every, everything good and victorious has been given to us 
in Him. All of your enemies have been defeated or their defeat has been guaranteed. Death has been conquered for you. The world has been overcome and a better world prepared in your place. Your sins no longer condemn you or, 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 or weight you down. Your hope in Christ is secure. You can take heart and be of good cheer because of that. Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome your own sinfulness. He's, he's overcome the devil. He's overcome every charge laid against you. Everything aimed at your destruction has been absorbed by Him. And everything blessed has been reserved for you by His life. Eternal life, no more sickness, no more sin, the, the beatific vision, you're going to see God and countless promises and blessings that cannot be taken away from you by anything in this world. They all belong to you in Christ. And so I want to spend the rest of our time, the, the, the latter half of our morning, on three points. How joy is active in the Christian's life or, or ways to walk with the spirit of joy. And the first and by far the most substantial is remembering all the blessings and deliverances which are the wellspring of joy that never runs dry. And they are many and we're not going to get to them all certainly but the greatest of them is the joy of our salvation. Consider King David after his horrific sin with Bathsheba and the, the turmoil that it caused, uh, it, it unleashed deservedly in his life. And here, by the way, we see that sometimes our sin does have terrible consequences that will not go away. But terrible as they are, even they cannot destroy our joy. So David, what does he do? He prays. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges his guilt. He asks to be cleansed. He asks God then in Psalm 51 to restore to him the joy of his salvation. He had lost his joy. Why? He lost his joy because of sin. Unconfessed, undealt with, hidden sin. He, he had, he had uh, taken another man's wife and then killed that man and then covered it up. He ignored it swept it away. He was too proud to acknowledge it. And, and so it lingered over him like a joy-swallowing fog. Unconfessed sin will do that. If there's sin in your life and, and you're holding on to it, it grieves the spirit of joy. And if the spirit of joy is being grieved, what joy can you really expect to have? you want to have joy and you know of sins in your life, confess those sins. You know, there are a lot of reasons why sometimes sins go unconfessed for Christians. Sometimes it's because they cannot come to terms with the reality that they've done something so terrible. I can't believe I've done this. I just want to pretend it never happened. Sometimes we know it was wrong, but we justify it. Yeah, I may have been wrong, but you don't know my situation. And so even though it was wrong, it's, it's okay, it's justified. Maybe we've become 
cold and calloused and can't even recognize the sin that we've done. Or maybe a believer is burdened with the guilt of it and the accusation of it. And they dare not entertain approaching the throne of grace. God, I, it's too terrible. I know you've said if we confess our sins, this one's too much. The accusations are too much. The guilt is too great. The shame is too great. I can't go. Whatever the reason, they sap you of joy. No one can be joyful when they are out of step with the joy giver. The only it's, uh, the good news is that Jesus delights to forgive. God delights to forgive. God delights to restore the joy of our salvation like He did with King David. And so we know and we can have assurance that our sins no longer condemn us. And if your sins no longer condemn you, if your sins don't condemn you anymore, if the guilt is taken away, if you have a place for relief, I forget who it was, um, one of the, well, it was a doctor, a psychologist, he said one of the reasons why people are, are so depressed in the world today is because they're so guilty and their guilt is driving them mad. They don't know what to do with it. You, you, you can't be depressed and have joy. And very often guilt ransacks people's lives and ruins them. They don't have any place to relieve themselves of this pressure of guilt in their life. Christ delights to forgive. He wants to forgive. He came to forgive and to erase the sins of His people. And if your sins no longer condemn you and nothing can take that away, you have joy in your salvation. Now, sin can hamper that, but the solution is not hard to understand. Certainly it's hard on our pride, but it's not hard to understand. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins to the Lord and go to Him and go to Him for mercy and be restored and strengthened and the joy of your salvation will return. Or Psalm 4-7. So, we have joy because our sins are forgiven. Joy in our salvation. Psalm 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than when, they, than when their grain and wine abound. And here the psalmist is comparing and contrasting himself to the wicked. That's what he's doing in Psalm 1. He says, they don't know you, Lord. They, do, they turn your honor into shame. Everything they have will perish, but I will be exalted. You have preserved me from destruction. Because I belong to you, I am safe in you. I am more secure than 10,000 outside of you. So what does it matter if all of, the, all of the pagans around me are full and fat and I'm a little lean? There is more joy in the heart of a believer who has nothing but Christ than there is joy in those who have everything excepting Christ in their lives. They have everything but Christ. In the end, they have nothing. If you have nothing but Christ, in the end, you have everything. It's easy, though, for believers to look around at the world around us and the state of the world and the state of the church and lose our joy. We, we look around as though God maybe has lost control over things and, and, and things are no longer working according to His all-wise plan and, and for our everlasting good, and we forget those things. 
and forgetting those things, it's easy to become downcast and distraught and sour and have no cheer. Why? Because the world is not the way we want the world to be. And we think we could be joyful if the world was more to our liking. And not just in political ways. Sure, we might be happy if there was a new prime minister, but what if there was a great revival? Or the kingdom was advancing rapidly? A kingdom of darkness in full retreat? Real, visible, tangible victory? It would be ground for solid joy, wouldn't it? I mean, it would certainly be a joyful occasion, but it might not be as solid as you think. Consider Elijah on Mount Carmel. Victory gave way rapidly to a crushing defeat. And it serves to remind us that those things are, even though they're good and to be prayed for, to be sought after and labored for by believers, moments of rejoicing are going to be here. They come, but that is infinitesimally small to the source of real joy and cheer in the believer. Consider Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples. And he gives them the authority over unclean spirits. He gives them power for preaching. gives them the ability to heal all manner of diseases and sicknesses. He gives them protection from venomous snakes and insects and serpents. Nothing can harm them. And so they go out on their little mission. And they know nothing but victory the entire time. Even the demons and the kingdom of darkness itself is fleeing away in retreat from these disciples who've been given the authority of Jesus for this very thing. Just imagine if this was you. You're given the authority of Christ to cast out demons, heal the sick, and preach with irresistible wisdom and conviction. Right? Walk through the hospital and point at people and command in Jesus' name that they be healed and empty the whole building. Preach and have every one who hears you, agree with you, and be convicted at the truth coming out of your mouth. Well, how would you feel? I think you'd say, I have a real reason to rejoice. That's what the disciples did. These, these 72, they came back rejoicing. All of creation, the whole curse, all darkness, it's fleeing before them in the name of Christ Jesus. We read about it in Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does Jesus tell these disciples? He doesn't tell them to mourn about it. It's good. But he says if you really want something to rejoice about, if you really want a joy that's going to last, your names are written in heaven. What are the implications of this? If you only knew what God has done for you, if you only knew the price that will be paid to the disciples, if you only knew to us the price that was paid to bring you out of darkness into light, if you know how costly the ink was that penned your name in that place, every other thing that you could possibly rejoice about would, would not compare. I, I mean, imagine, imagine if you were offered $100,000. It's for you. 
your, your name was put in a draw when you bought a coffee at your favorite coffee shop and you won $100,000. What would you do? Uh, you would rejoice, right? You would be happy. But if you were a billionaire, if you had tens of billions of dollars, money upon money, what does winning $100,000 look like then? What is $100,000 in comparison to what you already have? You know, if you were a billionaire, if you had any sense about you, not only could you not really rejoice about it, but your conscience would trouble you to even accept the money. It reminds me of, uh, they, they said of Bill Gates when Microsoft was at its, at its prime, if he was walking down the road, going to work, and there on the, on the, on the, on the sidewalk was $10,000. And he had to stop for five seconds to pick up that $10,000, and it would make him five seconds late for work. It was not economically advantageous to him to stop and pick it up because he made more than that in five seconds being in his office at Microsoft. Now, can you imagine being that wealthy that $10,000 on the side of the road with your name on it and it's not even worth it for you to stop and pick it up? That's what Jesus is saying to these disciples. What is there in heaven if you had a, a picture of it, if you could really grasp it, every joy that this world held out to you, and, and I'm not saying that they're bad. Many of them are good. Don't, don't misunderstand me. They are truly good and moments of true joy. They're just pitiful in comparison to what's won for us in Christ and awaits us there. And because our joy is so secure and so vast in Jesus... Point two, we can rejoice in sufferings. There are many things in this world. There are many painful things that will seek to take away and rob you of joy, but none of those things actually have to take your joy away. In fact, if they come for the name of Christ, they can actually increase your rejoicing. And I don't mean that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings, that's usually how we think about the relationship between joy and suffering as Christians, right? I'm suffering, but even though I'm suffering, I have something really to be, to be happy about. And so the suffering is not that bad in comparison. And that's true, but it's much better than that. The Bible teaches us repeatedly that our trials themselves are reasons for joy. This is why Christian joy is so invincible. I mean, God is at work in your trials to bless you and to do things for you that are of such eternal value that if you could see, right, so this, this trial is like a deposit, that, that this trial I'm enduring is a deposit into heaven where my name is written, if you could see what was being put in there and then you had the opportunity to, to change the trial that you were enduring, you wouldn't make it go away. You said, this suffering, this little bit is gaining for me that, you would turn up the intensity of your trial if you could see it. You would want more because of what it is purchasing for you in the heavenly places. This not only allows you to rejoice in spite of your sufferings, like I'm enduring something hard, but I can have joy anyway. This allows us to rejoice in our suffering so that we can say, I know that what God is doing is better 
than whatever I am losing through this trial. God is at work. He has worked for my good, for my good and therefore I rejoice. We'll look at four verses, or more than four, but just consider first Acts 5, 41 through 40, uh, 40 through 41. Acts chapter 5, 40 and 41. When they had called the apostles, so that's the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. When they called the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Thank you, Lord, that we have been counted worthy to be beaten for the name of Jesus Christ. The disciples, that's what, that's what they were. They were whipped for preaching Jesus' name. Preaching in Christ. They had been preaching in the temple, got in a lot of trouble. The authorities came, took them, beat them, uh, scored their backs all to pieces, left them bloodied and bruised. And what do they do? All right, they walk out. Where's God in all of this? They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Every blow of the whip made Christ that much sweeter and more precious and more real to them. So much so that they had joy when they walked out of the torture session. Joy. Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Or James 1, 2, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How many of you lament the sin that remains in you? And you would give anything to be free of it. Maybe it's a temper, maybe it's a, a temptation, maybe it's a lack of self-control in some area, just an overall coldness or lukewarmness. Something. Do you know what trials have, of, uh, of various kinds accomplish for the Christian? They break chains of bondage and they produce steadfastness. They, they have a purifying effect like the, like the dross being burned off of, off of uh, precious metals in a furnace or, or like a tree that is being pruned, branches cut off so that it becomes more fruitful. And so every undeserved trial over it, you can write in big, bold letters, this is making me more like Christ. And if you have great joy in being more like Christ, then this will outweigh whatever pain you have to endure to get there. Right? Have you ever seen a marathon runner? <laughs> it's painful if you've, if you've run a marathon. I haven't. I don't, need to, I don't need to to know it's painful. Five kilometers is enough for me. But you see them running miles and miles and miles, and they're exhausted at the end. Sometimes they collapse. They're in pain. Physical, uh, full-fledged Agony. And yet they put, them through it, they put themselves through it willingly because they want to reach the finish line. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. So then we must not mind a little suffering. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. 
blessed are you, or happy are you. You've got a reason to be happy at least, which is so contrary to what it says. You've got a reason to be happy when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When was the last time someone reviled you and you thought to yourself, ha now here's an opportunity to bolster my joy. Rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted and others are lying about you to other people. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How would you like to be numbered in, in the, the hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11? Or how would you like to be counted with the prophets and the apostles and Moses or David? Persecution in this life. And not just physical persecution. Look what he says. Reviling, name-calling, insulting, disparaging, condemning. People saying bad things about you. People lying about you, slandering you. Economic hardship. You know what that does? It puts you in good company. It really does puts you in the company of the heroes of the faith. Not only that, it reminds you that you're a child of God. And not just a child of God, but a child of God in the company of those who suffer for Jesus and your reward in heaven is great. But good company and rewards in heaven, they're not the only reason to rejoice. These things... Reviling, persecution, slander because of Jesus. They confirm that you belong to Him. It's one of the things that they do. I mean, how many of you would trade? Now, maybe some of you have, a, have, a, have an assurance that is, that is well-founded. You know it. No doubt in your mind. But maybe some of you don't have that kind of assurance and don't have that kind of certainty. Well, what would you trade know without a doubt yes I belong to Jesus Christ I, most of you would probably trade anyone who's endured this would trade half of what they have maybe all of what they have if they could know with total confidence they belong to Jesus Christ that'd be a great source of comfort and a great source of joy for a wavering believer do you know that every unkind word against you for his sake not because you're just being difficult, but because of Jesus. It's confirming that you belong to Him. It's one of the clearest identifiers of a Christian. They suffer for Christ. And if you're suffering for Christ and being reviled and persecuted for His namesake, you can have great confidence that He is your God and you are His child. And lastly... And there are more, but lastly for this morning, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. And we rejoice in them because they are producing something better than whatever is lost. Whatever you lose because of the trial is not more valuable than whatever you gain because of the trial. 
And we have confidence because the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts. Now, this does not mean that we rejoice in tragedy or are you know, gleeful in suffering. We have a joy, a joyful disposition through it. But we also know how to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? Weep with those who weep. This does not mean that our circumstances cannot be painful, but that our joy in Christ is stronger and firmer than anything that could dishearten us. In fact, the joy we have in Christ is a ladder that can be used to climb out of every hole that we fall and seem to be stuck into. And if all of that is not enough, or you, you struggle to remember it, you struggle to believe it, the joy of God Himself, the joy that sustained Christ throughout His life, that, that cheerful, innate disposition of the Lord Jesus is in you by His Spirit. That's the third point. The Spirit of God is the source of joy. And He is the one, ultimately, who enables us to be joyful in our trials and to have faith that our trials are working for our everlasting good. It is His joy at work bringing joy out of and into us. Do you ever envy people who are always joyful? Right? Maybe you know people like this. It seems like nothing can ever get them down. You know people like this, right? They're, they're so optimistic, you wonder if they ever get disheartened. And they, they seem to be able to shrug off things that would just completely derail you. Now, they're encouraging people to be around, aren't they? They can make you feel as though nothing is ever that bad and, and nothing bad cannot soon get better. The Spirit of God is such a person. And He dwells in you. You have the joy of God Himself at work in you. And He who declares the end from the beginning is never derailed or disheartened. Nehemiah 8.10 The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's His joy in me that is my strength. Or John 15.11 My joy, Jesus speaking to His disciples, My joy I give to you. You have my joy. The very joy that the Son possesses in the promise of the Father, we possess by the Spirit. And that joy doesn't rise or fall. It is constant and it's always at full stream. Romans 14 and verse 17, The kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So maybe you wonder, how in the world could I rejoice in suffering? How can joy get me out of the pit? I don't have it in me. I don't see any reason for being joyful. I, I can't have joy. Things are just too awful. I, I hear everything that you've been saying, Corey, but it just doesn't seem to work. Do not forget that our joy along with everything else the Holy Spirit produces in us is utterly and totally dependent on Him. Because this joy, this kind of joy, ultimately, it is the work of the Holy Spirit working in you. It's His joy from His promises and His new life 
And that's a kind of joy that cannot be exhausted or displaced. It is settled. And though our perception of it ebbs and flows, everybody in this room, you are more joyful on some days than others. It doesn't mean the joy has changed. But our perception of what Christ has done may be stronger or weaker. And even though there is ebb and flow to our joy, it never is dissolved. And if you lack it, strive for it. It's a... I forget who it was. They said it's a, it's a battle to be joyful for the Christian. And if you are a Christian, we struggle for joy. So if you don't have it, or you are struggling for it, go to the Father who gives the Spirit to those who ask Him. And ask Him for joy. Repent of joy-killing sins and have your joy restored. Ask Him for greater faith to believe in that victory that has been won and so, so that you can say that no matter what else happens, no matter what tragedy strikes, come what may, I am secure in Christ and secure in my Father. And He is working for me and not against me. There is a joy that overwhelms tragedy with light. There is a joy that works to produce a glory in you that you will one day receive. And my hope is that you would be able to say with the apostles, we rejoice in our sufferings because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So if you're here this morning, you don't have joy, you don't know the joy giver, my advice to you would be to not come to Christ for joy. Don't come to Him for joy, because if you come to Him for joy, you say, I want to be happy. I'm going to come to Jesus. You won't receive it. Why? Because you cannot come to the giver of these things and have them without having Him. And so if you will come, you come to Christ for Christ. Not for joy, but for Him. You, you can't take His joy and abstract it from Him and add it to your life. You have to surrender your life to Him. Your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your sense of morality, right and wrong, it now comes from Christ. Your sins, you confess them before Him. I'll turn away from them, Lord, and walk in them no more. I'm trusting You for forgiveness for all of these joy-killing, guilt-ridden things. And then will you be happy? Absolutely. But not from seeking joy, but for seeking and finding, or for seeking and being found by the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him, for Him, and you will have joy. But you cannot come to Him for joy and expect to have anything at all. Christ is the source. And apart from Him, we have no good thing. But in Him, all the blessings of God are ours. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You want Your people to be filled with joy. Lord, in this world we will have trouble. But we can take heart because You have overcome the world. We can be of good cheer because You have overcome the world. Lord, everything... Help us to believe, Lord, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and that what awaits us there outweighs everything here, good and bad. Help us to say with the psalmist, I have no good apart from You. 
Help us to find our joy in Christ. The only lasting joy that can be found. And I pray for anyone here who does not know You and does not know the, the joy and the love of Christ, that they would find it by finding You and coming to You for forgiveness. That they would repent and believe the Gospel. I pray for any believer here who is struggling to find joy. Lord, circumstances can weigh on joy, absolutely. I pray, Lord, that You would come and be with anyone in this room whose circumstances are more difficult and that You would give them joy in what they are enduring. That they might be able to endure and overcome. Thank You, Lord for your many blessings and your many promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.